Hi, this is Kevin Hammonds, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into episode 419 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing drink beer outside with additional support from interwest insurance the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches I've got to admit, I'm a little bit behind getting this episode out, um, so I'm not going to drag out the introduction here too long. Um, I do try and get out the episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month, um, and I think I've got, including this episode, uh, four episodes um, for the rest of this season. So I hope you've been enjoying the show. Um, I am taking some suggestions for interview guest ideas or just topic ideas to discuss for next season, which will be season five of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Pretty crazy. Um, but if you have an, any ideas of, of some folks that you want to hear on the show or just some topics to really try to drill into for next year, um, next season then please reach out. You can reach out to me via email at, let's see, the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Or you could direct message me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, if you do that, you might as well give us a follow as well. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on those outlets. Um, if you have feedback for the show, send that along as well. Um, suggestions or critiques um, I'm welcome welcoming it all uh, hope everybody's doing well out there staying safe um, certainly seems like people are engaging with their communities these days um, bringing about hopefully bringing about some positive social change in this world whatever you do out there just do it nicely Today's episode will feature Kevin Hammonds. Kevin is a professor in the Civil Engineering Department and director of the Sub-Zero Lab at Montana State University. Um, this interview is part of the, the tour that I did at Montana State University. And if you've been listening to some of the other episodes in Season 4, uh, you will notice the theme that I, I felt like I was really in the in-crowd in the academic community there by just utilizing the word data set. So if you're playing the data set drinking game, as I'm calling it, go ahead and take a take a swill of your favorite 10-barrel beer every time the word data set is spoken on this episode. If you've been listening to the episodes in Season 4, 
maybe you remember earlier on, uh, we interviewed Ed Adams, and Ed founded the Sub-Zero Lab at Montana State University, and upon retiring, Kevin has taken over the, the role of director of the Sub-Zero Lab. Um, Kevin has a great background in the practitioner side of the snow and avalanche world, um, being an avalanche forecaster, a ski patroller, a climbing ranger, amongst other things, mostly within the, the federal government, the National Park Service, and the National Forest Service. Kevin also has a, a strong background in academia um, and research. And so it seems that he is a, certainly a great fit for the role of director of the Sub-Zero Lab. Um, and he is also helping to fuel a ton of research that's going on in the snow and avalanche world these days. Um, so a big thanks to all of the researchers out there that are, that are kind of fueling the fire and doing, putting in the, the hard, hard work of, of some of this research to help us practitioners out. Um, so we sit down, we have a great conversation. Kevin explains some of the features of the Sub-Zero Lab and drills into some of the, some of the research that's going on there as we speak. Um, great conversation with Kevin Hammonds. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, so we're sitting in the engineering building at Montana State University, and just below us on the first floor is the Sub-Zero Lab. Uh, maybe you could introduce yourself, talk about uh, how you first got interested in snow and avalanches, and then your educational and career path that's led you to uh, the engineering school at MSU. Okay, yeah. So again, uh, my name is Kevin Hammonds. I'm an assistant professor in the civil engineering department at Montana State University. I'm also the current director of the Sub-Zero Research Laboratory. Um, and thinking back to about how I got started in uh, avalanche education and avalanche forecasting, I kind of have a what I think of as a very non-traditional and circuitous path, I'd say. So I got my first undergraduate degree in natural resources recreation and tourism actually from Colorado State University uh, back in 2002 because I wanted to be a park ranger and I wanted to work for the Forest Service and so not long after that I got my first job with the Forest Service up in the Chugach National Forest in Alaska and um, after that first summer uh, which I really enjoyed working as a as a wilderness ranger uh, I got my next job uh, in Glacier National Park in Montana and during the winters in that time period I started working as a snowmaker at, at Vail Resorts and so I was starting to kind of get exposed to um, field work uh, related to being in in snow, snowy and mountainous environments. And so that work with the Park Service continued. I, I went from, uh, just to give you the rundown, I went from the Chugach to Glacier to Rocky Mountain National Park to uh, Mount Baker as a climbing ranger and then also doing a stint on on a fire crew in Baker Snoqualmie as well and then on to being a climbing ranger at Mount Rainier for four seasons and then finally uh, ended up as an avalanche forecaster at Yellowstone National Park for for one winter and over the course of those years I was spending my uh, winters primarily working at first as a snowmaker at Vail Resorts and then as a as a ski patroller at Park City Mountain Resort 
And so over that time period, uh, I got really interested in how to forecast uh, avalanche conditions and, and also fire weather um, conditions or just general weather conditions for mountain operations and rescue and things like that. And so uh, after reading all the books I could get my hands on, the Avalanche Handbook, um, Staying Alive in Avalanche Train, sort of the, the, the books that we all know, uh, read all those cover to cover, but just didn't really feel satisfied with my, my knowledge base. And so decided the best thing to do is to go back to school. So I started off down at the University of Utah. I was living in Park City at the time and uh, decided that I wanted to learn more about forecasting. So I got into uh, the meteorology program at the University of Utah. And I didn't have all the prereqs that I needed to get into the graduate program right away. So I ended up doing another undergraduate degree in atmospheric sciences and then uh, was admitted to the graduate program as a master's student after that. Uh, in this time period, I'm still you know, kind of working as, seasonal, as much seasonally as I can at Mount Rainier and at Yellowstone National Park and then also ski patrolling uh, at Park City. But um, during my graduate research work at the University of Utah, I got to spend a summer up on the Greenland Ice Sheet. And that's where I met who became my PhD advisor at Dartmouth College. And there was a group that came through from the engineering school at Dartmouth who were uh, studying you know, climate science and sort of ice sheet uh, mechanics and I became really interested in in their work and ended up going to the Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth for my PhD to study sort of more uh, ice physics and ice mechanics and so at, at that point I sort of had the I feel like the uh, field expertise to be able to do uh, what turned out to be I think pretty high level material science and materials characterization but be able to always relate it back to know how would this be useful in the field from the practitioner perspective and I've sort of continued on with that uh, now into my current position here at Montana State University all right well it's great to it's always great to hear about researchers that have that practitioner uh, background and then kind of the practitioners best interest in mind when doing that sort of research um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what's going on at the sub-zero lab here Yes, yeah, so our Sub-Zero Research Laboratory, uh, just to tell you more about it, I guess, is a 2,700-square-foot, $2.5 million facility that was built specifically for um, cold materials and cold regions research. And so we have a variety of different research projects that go on in the lab. It's Like I said, it's a multidisciplinary facility. So we have, um, we have investigators and researchers from all across campus that, that uh, perform the research here. Some that are, are working on... Um, projects related to uh, climate science, looking at you know life in the Antarctic, you know where life exists in the Antarctic ice sheet, for instance, uh, or also in in polar fern regions of Greenland. Uh, and then we have folks like myself that are doing uh, snow hydrology and avalanche forecasting projects based in the lab as well. And what makes the the laboratory unique is is all the capabilities that it was designed for and with in mind. So each of our eight cold rooms was designed with a specific purpose for a specific type of research. And it makes this uh, laboratory a really unique uh, place to study ice and snow uh, mechanics and material properties, uh, so on and so forth. So it seems like a great interdisciplinary research facility and really one of a kind, um, at least in the United States, if not the world. Um, what sort of specific 
research is going on there right now related to snow and avalanches. So some of the research that we're doing in my group right now that I'm really excited about is that we have uh, one room that's a structural testing chamber basically and uh, what we have in that room right now is a wind tunnel. Uh, it's a wind tunnel that I uh, actually brought here from Dartmouth College. It was given to me by Victor Petrenko when he retired. He's a pretty well-known ice physicist. But um, anyhow, with that wind tunnel right now, what we're doing is making different uh, wind slabs as a function of wind speed and sort of joining those slabs together inside the wind tunnel itself so that we can kind of create this very natural representation of, of um, two different snow slabs on top of each other like you see outside. And after we create this um, wind slab, sort of sandwich you could think of it as, we can take that out of our wind tunnel and and then manipulate it in a number of ways that would also represent natural phenomenon. So the easiest thing to do is to put it under a temperature gradient. So we can make the bottom side of this sort of wind slab sandwich a little bit warmer than the top. And so we set up this temperature gradient like you see outside. And the question being asked here is what's happening actually at that interface uh, between those two different uh, wind slabs? what you'd expect is that there's a change in the thermal conductivity at that um, between those those two slabs of snow so essentially how does the heat uh, move from one side to the other uh, at that interface it, as it turns out there's um, there's a gap in uh, that thermal conductivity of those two slabs of snow and that sets up uh, what is it what we think is an enhanced temperature gradient. So long story short, <laughs> I think that you have the potential to get enhanced uh, faceting at the interface between these two different types of snow. And we're able to recreate that in the lab and uh, study it from both making temperature measurements actually at that interface, but then also scanning it with our uh, micro CT as well to look at the microstructure change at that interface. Kevin, maybe talk a little bit more about that micro CT and, and, and what that's used for and, and how you guys are applying that to study the structure. Yeah, so the micro CT is basically a CAT scanner for small things. So it's the same thing as you might picture or have seen in a hospital. Um, but instead of moving the x-ray source around you, like is done in a hospital, we actually just leave the x-ray source in, in one location fixed and we rotate our sample, you know, so that we're able to get multiple views of the, of the sample. And then those all get reconstructed in, into uh, a three-dimensional representation that we can then sort of zoom in and zoom out of or look at any particular uh, place within that entire sample. And it works really well for any porous medium, just like your, it works well for your porous bones. It works really well for a porous sort of ice and air, snow microstructure. And so from that, we not, not only can look at these three-dimensional images to sort of gain some insight, but we can also quantify uh, things like how much the grain size might have changed over the course of an experiment or how they became more connected or less connected. Uh, we, we can start to, to add numbers to, to how these things change over time or during an experiment. So then you have a fuller data set for some of this research, right? Well, we have something that we can, uh, I think, begin to incorporate into our quantitative understanding and our, our models for how these things work and behave in real life from what we're able to measure and then also see with the micro CT imagery. And uh, I mean, that's something that I think we're, we're, we have a 
pretty proud history of doing here at MSU. MSU, uh, Ed Adams and company were the first ones to ever do micro CT on snow. And now we have a micro CT uh, instrument that actually lives in one of our cold rooms. So we keep it at about minus 10 C. And that really, I think, sets MSU apart from other laboratories like it. Um, there's only a handful of laboratories all around the world that have gone to such measures to be able to, to study snow in this kind of detail. And what would you say is like maybe the greatest finding or most applicable finding to the snow and avalanche practitioner from some of the work within the micro CT scanner? Um, I think some of the, the work that I started off doing during my PhD and is that we're now continuing with here with uh, some of my graduate students is looking at uh, what happens at, at those interfaces in a snowpack like I was discussing before. Uh, if you have an, inter an interface between two different densities of snow or an interface between snow and an ice crust, uh, those are often the places that you look to for um, to be weak layers in a snowpack or that you would expect to be weak layers in a snowpack. And so as it turns out, the uh, morphology, the way that the, the snow grains are changing in their size and their shape uh, is, is enhanced. You know, it's changing differently at those interfaces than it is throughout the rest of that snow slab. And so we've been able to zoom in uh, with micro CT and be able to, you know, see and then also quantify those changes at that specific location. So if we are getting more faceting there or any, you know, ice crystal growth on, say, uh, an ice crust, Micro CT makes it really uh, easy for us to be able to see and quantify that without, uh, without, I guess, disrupting the, the local microstructure. Okay, and so we're talking about an intense temperature gradient over a very small area, right? Talking about, you know, maybe a temperature gradient around a crust. Yeah, exactly. How a temperature gradient changes at the at the actual interface. So, um, although you although you might only be observing something like a 10 degree C per meter temperature gradient or less uh, at that interface, it can actually be uh, a lot greater than that. And uh, we're, we're working on, some of our current research is working on um, being able to measure that in situ during an experiment with some very sophisticated uh, measurement techniques and then also, you know, characterizing how that microstructure actually changes from the micro CT. And it's really important to have both of those components incorporated into the research because we want to have the physical measurement of temperature change to be able to incorporate into a, a model for how we would expect this to apply to any other you know snowpack case that you can think of any other snow stratigraphy that you might want to apply it to but then also what what makes the snowpack mechanically weak at that interface is all due to the microstructure mm -hmm. so the microstructure is a result of the temperature and uh, the microstructure essentially gives you the uh, the thermodynamic and mechanical history of the snowpack at that point and that's what we get from micro CT. Right and so if, if we extrapolate this out into the field these are temperature gradients that we can't even we can't measure in the field with a regular dial stem thermometer right? Right we're talking about temperature gradients that are on the scale of you know a millimeter you right. know over over the scale of a millimeter or less even uh, and if you think about it it makes some sense intuitively because I think a lot of people that have spent time in the field digging snow pits have seen, you know, weak layers or faceted layers that them that themselves are of that, you know, half millimeter to millimeter size. And so just for reference, a dial stem thermometer 
the diameter of it itself is two millimeters. Right. So you definitely can't measure the temperature gradient, you know, within that within that region of space. So you as a practitioner yourself and a researcher, how do you suggest people kind of be on the lookout for these micro temperature gradients in the field? I think probably the best uh, approach is to be able to identify these interfaces uh, and then just make notes in, in your pit book where you have uh, an interface, even though you might have a temperature gradient that could be linear if you were to draw a straight line from from one slab to the next and you're measuring your temperature every five centimeters or every 10 centimeters you could draw a straight line there but i think you need to be aware that there could be something really different right at that interface so you might draw a little break or something mm -hmm. at that at that point in your pit book just to remind you that there very well could be uh what we when we published this work uh the first time um there very well could be what we call the temperature gradient multiplier at that point. So it might be your measured temperature gradient sort of over the bulk times, you know, five or 10 or 20. Uh, it's really not, we don't really have a great handle on what that multiplier should be for all the different snow types and conditions that are out there. And that's specifically what we're trying to research right now uh, is trying to fill in the, the gap of knowledge of given a certain density um, above and below that interface, what would you expect the the temperature gradient multiplier to be at that point. My hope is that one day we'll have a table for the practitioner to sort of reference such that if you know the density and the temperature gradient above, above and below an interface, you'll be able to select a temperature gradient multiplier to apply at that interface based on those two things that might not be exact, but hopefully will get you into the ballpark of being able to evaluate whether or not you're in a faceting regime or a rounding regime at that interface. Wow, sounds really helpful. Yeah. Um, so we had a listener submit a question, Matt Will, thanks for this question. Um, he's just wondering, and you talked a little bit about this, but uh, maybe you could go in, into it a little bit more, the process of replicating a snowpack in the lab and what's the process of replicating that slab weak layer combination. You talked about creating some some wind slab on top of another wind slab or denser layer, but how about making that slab weak layer combination? Yeah, so oftentimes uh, we're really just concerned with making one slab at a time, and for that we just focus on the grain size. So if we're talking about a one millimeter or two millimeter grain size, we try and create a, a slab of snow that over its depth is consistent with the grain size. And we do that by taking sometimes natural um, snowflakes or sometimes snowflakes that we grew here in the lab and sifting them through uh, a sieve of specific diameter and that more or less gives us um, a grain size distribution that meets whatever the grain size was that we wanted for that particular slab in that particular experiment. When it comes to actually uh, building up a stratigraphy that becomes a little bit more complicated so um, in the case of building up wind slabs, that's why we want to actually use a wind tunnel to build that synthetic snowpack, as I would call it for, from the laboratory perspective, to represent you know, nature as closely as possible. So in the lab, we generally are trying to replicate not just what the snow uh, crystal structure might look like in the field, but we're trying to also replicate the process as to how it grew. And that applies also to some of the work that's been done um, in in previous years by Ed Adams where they they did a lot of work growing surface hoar crystals on the surface of a snowpack before burying it under 
uh, what you could consider was a, a snow slab and doing their mechanical tests on it. So they actually, you know, grew that surface ore on the snow surface in the lab uh, and then sifted a known grain size of snow on top of it, allowed it to center over some period of time, and then you have sort of the same setup in the laboratory as you see in the field um, for a persistent weak layer like surface ore. All right. So you mentioned um, sometimes collecting natural snow, right? So you just go outside and, and bring samples into the cold lab. Mm -hmm. um, how are you going about growing snow? So we have a couple snowmakers in our lab that are similar to what they have uh, at the laboratory for avalanche research in Switzerland um, that basically just use um, nucleation sites on some nylon strings that are stretched across uh, what we call our nucleation chamber such that when we in introduce um, air that has a lot of water vapor in it or highly saturated uh, air, it, it wants to nucleate on those strings and, and when it does so it sort of grows um, these dendritic crystals, these dendritic arms. So not the full dendrite like you're used to seeing uh, outside but something that's pretty close to that. You know, we at least get part of that. And that's what we use as our, you know, laboratory-made snowpack where we're able to kind of achieve the same natural densities that you get from a freshly fallen snow. And then, of course, over time, if uh, we, we can allow those to deform and to center the same way that the natural snow, you know, deforms and degrades uh, over time outside, we can allow those same processes to happen in the lab, but we can control the temperature so we can have, say, everything um, degrade at minus 10 C until we get the, the sort of microstructure or the grain size that we want and then we can take that snow and perform our experiment. Um, we also collect snow samples from the field because really if we're trying to represent field conditions oftentimes there's nothing better than, than nature in doing that. Um, but the problem with that is that that introduces some unknown variables into uh, the snow that we collect from the field such as uh, particulate matter, or um, soluble impurities into the snow as well. And those things can all have their own effects. And those are also things we try to control for in the laboratory. And how hard is it to maintain the same temperature when you're transporting a, a field sample into the cold lab? Is well, that a challenge? Um, the best approach that we found for, for moving a snow sample from the, from the field to the lab is really just to um, put it inside a cooler full of dry ice and that brings it down to a temperature of, you know, around minus 60 C. And so you're not maintaining the same temperature that you collected it in, but by making it colder, you're kind of preventing it from going through any of its typical metamorphism processes. And so we're able to sort of preserve it, I guess you could say. The other approach that, that has been deployed in the past for maintaining a snow microstructure and moving snow from the, from the field to the lab is to uh, saturate the snow in the field with a pore filler called dimethyl phthalate and that kind of acts as, acts as like a casting agent so that it um, once it fills in all the pore space within this between the snow grains we freeze the whole block basically and then everything sort of stuck in place hmm. and we can actually do micro CT on those samples as well we can't do any more mechanical testing with them but we can still look at the microstructure with micro CT even in that even in that casted state so sometimes that's another approach that you mm -hmm. can take for a really, if you have a, a weak layer that you want to look at that's really fragile or something like that, you might try and, and cast it and bring it to the lab. Sure. You had just mentioned about 
kind of environmental or chemical impurities within the snowpack, um, which is which happens in its natural environment. Have you done some research on um, kind of the effects of of such things on a natural snowpack? Uh, yeah, actually, that's another area of research that we're active in right now, and it's kind of, again, following up on some of the research I did as part of my PhD, where uh, I had looked at the effects of sulfuric acid in polycrystalline ice, and polycrystalline ice is basically just means that it's representative of ice sheets or glacier kind of ice. Um, and what we found was that the addition of sulfuric acid, in this case, which is naturally produced in the Earth's atmosphere and, and is... Um, can be found in any raindrop or any snowflake that you that you find um, is that it has a, a consequence for the mechanical behavior of ice which is to reduce its strength basically uh, and so I'm curious now that uh, I'm focused more primarily on on seasonal snow covers uh, such as that such as what you see in the mountains is what is the effect of things like sulfuric acid and and all the other soluble impurities that are uh, deposit into our snowpacks naturally, uh, what, are, what are their effects on the mechanical behavior of snow? And so we have some laboratory experiments going on right now where we're also doping snow grains with, you know, very small amounts, trace amounts of, of sulfuric acid, and we're studying the effects on their uh, mechanical behavior. And is it safe to say that there's more sulfuric acid in a snowpack now than there had been in the past? No, interestingly, sulfuric acid is one of the things I think has probably remained constant huh. because it's contributed to the atmosphere from uh, biomass burning, from volcanoes. You know, there's a reaction that happens with sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere that actually produces the sulfuric acid. Uh, these days, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, more or less, there are, there are a lot of there are a lot more anthropogenic sources of pollution going into the atmosphere. And of course, those things are, are being scavenged out in precipitation events, rain events, snow events. Um, whatever but the but the amount of sulfuric acids probably stayed uh, relatively close to the same as what it's always been so now the question is uh, that's just one you know sulfuric acid is just one impurity that we're interested in um, because it's something that I already have a, a feel for and, and kind of know what the expected behavior is going to be with snow but there are a lot of other things to look at and I think that also breaks that's all, that also brings about a more interesting question about um, sort of a regional snowpack response you know if you're uh, near a, a major metropolitan area that that's known to you know have a lot of pollutants that are being put into the atmosphere that happens to be um, upwind of you know near near a mountainous area where you think a lot of the the pollutants that are um, put into the atmosphere from that from that industrial side of a of a being a major metropolitan area you'd have to wonder what are the effects on the snow once it's deposited and I think that's an open question. Uh, and whether or not it's important or plays a primary role, I don't know. But it definitely, certain it, it certainly seems from the research we've done thus far that there there is an effect uh, on mechanical behavior, and it's not always to strengthen the snowpack; it can also weaken the snowpack. Mm. That'll be interesting stuff to hear about in the future. Here, other research that's going on that you'd like to highlight? Yeah. So another project that um, really. Um, interested in seeing where the, the results take us is a, a research project that's sponsored by the Transportation Avalanche Research Pool, uh, TARP. So TARP is a um, 
consortium of Western state departments of transportation that have all gotten together that have avalanche forecasting problems for their highways and, and roadway corridors. And they've, uh, each respective department of transportation has dedicated some funds towards research to help, I think, make their, their jobs uh, easier, so to speak, you know, to help them with their avalanche forecasting problems. And so we have a project funded by TARP right now that our aim is to take what's known about uh, LIDAR being used for avalanche forecasting. So, so LIDAR is sort of, it's called light detection and ranging. It's similar to radar, except you're sending optical and, and uh, near-infrared wavelengths out as your signal and then receiving that back once it, once it bounces back off of a target. So it's been shown uh, to be really good at being able to map things like snow depth uh, on a on a mountainside, and how that changes for um, over the course of the winter as you get each precipitation event that comes through, and what we're interested in doing in this study is seeing if we can get any additional information out of that uh, lidar data that could tell us something more about, say, the surface properties of the snowpack. Uh, some additional information about you know the surface characteristics of the snow cover, and we want to know if it's you know high density or low density. Is it uh, you know, stiff like a hard slab, or is it soft like uh, fluffy powder? We think we can get that kind of information out of some of this LIDAR data as well, provided that we use the right uh, frequency and wavelength. So that's one component of the research, and we're, we're approaching this from both the field and laboratory standpoint. So we're actually bringing in, um, you know, LIDAR into our laboratory, creating different types of snowpacks with different properties and measuring them such that when we go to the field, we'll have some idea of how we can interpret that field data. And then also the other component of this research that we're really um, interested in, in giving to the avalanche forecasting community is a real-time uh, data analytics software package so that any forecaster that has access to LIDAR data obviously can uh, look at that LIDAR data in real time uh, as they're out in the field, you know, maybe scanning a starting zone for one of their slopes that they're concerned about. Uh, the idea is that they'll be able to see on a laptop, you know, in their truck in real time, you know, what the uh, surface characteristics of the snow might be, you know, what the depth is in these different locations, you know, in the middle of a storm or after a storm. Uh, and then hopefully that is able to provide them with a, a tool for making the best decision possible on uh, how to handle that, that, that avalanche problem on that given day. That certainly seems like an applicable research program to, to, to help out the real world. That's great to hear about. So we have another project that's been funded by NASA to study hydrological forecasting of snow covers. And for this project, we're again um, trying to utilize remote sensing techniques uh, in the laboratory and also in the field to be able to, to understand how different snow types and characteristics affect the return of a radar signal. So radar, radio detection and ranging is sending out a radio wave, it bounces off a target and then you collect that signal when it comes back. And how that signal changes depends a lot on the material that it actually interacted with. And what we're trying to learn right now from a laboratory perspective is how does that signal change when you are interacting with um, something like surface hoar that might be on the surface or within the snowpack? Uh, can we use these different um, frequencies of radar to see the stratigraphy of the snow? And then can we map that out in uh, three dimensions. We were trying to sort of tackle all that at the same time. I think some of the research we're doing 
regarding um, radar in the laboratory now also out in the field is going to be really useful for answering the uh, wet snow avalanche forecasting problem. So one of the applications that we're using radar for right now is actually to um, put the radar underneath the snowpack and have it look up. And by having the radar underneath the snowpack looking up, we're actually able to see water, you know, as it forms in the snowpack from a solar melting event or from a rain on snow event, we're actually able to watch how that water percolates down through the snowpack. And if it pools at um, an ice crust or at a capillary barrier within the snow, we're able to see that sort of all happen in real time with our radar data. And the advantage to using this upward looking radar technique as opposed to a downward looking radar technique is that uh, when you're looking down at the snowpack, as soon as you have uh, any liquid water that, uh, that starts to form in the pool at the surface of the snowpack, it attenuates that full signal. You're not really able to watch it and track it as it moves down through the snowpack. And so I think uh, this is going to have applications both for hydrological and for avalanche forecasting and just being able to know uh, when and where you would expect water to percolate through the snow, where you'd expect it to, to pool, which could very well be at a weak layer in the snowpack. And um, hopefully that helps you know, operational forecasters uh, be, able to, be able to utilize that, that data for um, making decisions about how to handle their water resources or, or whether or not they need to be concerned about a potential avalanche risk due to uh, wet snow. Mm. And so in the lab, you're introducing radiation from the top of the snowpack with the radar underneath. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the other, this is utilizing one of the other unique um, rooms within our laboratory called the environmental chamber where we're able to control sort of that solar input. So we have a, a metal halide lamp that represents the full solar spectrum that we can sort of dial the intensity of up or down. So we can represent natural conditions in that from that aspect. Uh, and so that would be placed so we have the solar lamp above the snowpack, and then we have our radar below it looking up. And so we're able to induce melting the same way that it would happen in the field from, from just uh, solar radiation. And then we're able to track how that uh, liquid water front percolates down through the snowpack. And uh, we've, we've been doing some experiments like this in the laboratory for the last couple months that are, are looking to be um, there, that have provided us with a lot of encouraging data. And we also actually just installed our first field upward-looking radar system at the Bridger Bowl ski area uh, near one of their uh, meteorological stations. So we're going to have some field data to compare with now as well. Cool. Well, yeah, and that was one of my questions is kind of the logistics of getting a radar on the ground pre-snow, right? And so it sounds like it's logistically capable. Yeah, it's definitely uh, doable. Um, it helps to have a backhoe because <laughs> we actually need to dig a pretty deep hole because you actually need to get the antennas of the radar far enough away from the bottom of the snowpack to where you're kind of outside of what we call the crosstalk region of, of noise really that's, that's, that develops between one antenna talking directly to the other. So if you're a few feet away from the snowpack uh, base, then we're able to see it really clearly and we can track uh, you know snow accumulation over the whole course of the season because we're penetrating all the way through the snowpack. So just to, just to sort of paint a picture for you of what this radar looks like, it's not the big radar that you see at the National Weather Service building. These are really small, portable, low-powered radar systems actually built here in Bozeman, Montana by a company called uh, Flat Earth 
sensing solutions. And they've been leading the charge really in developing radar remote sensing for snow science applications. And they're one of our partners on this project. So at the same site at Bridger Bowl actually, they also are gonna have one of their new um, radar sensors specifically designed for snow uh, looking down at the snow and then it'll be right next to ours which is looking up so we're pretty excited to see uh, what that data set looks like at the end of the season sounds great and when you're when you're looking at this in the lab that's a artificial snowpack that you've created yeah so far all of our experiments have been on artificial snowpacks where we've been able to place say a capillary barrier where you have two different size snow grains that are you know kind of interfacing with each other or we've been able to create, you know, ice crusts that might be right in the middle of the of the slab, and sort of see how water percolates and pools at those at those areas. Uh, over the course of this coming winter, we're also going to be bringing in natural snow slabs for, and snow packs from the field to uh, also investigate from the laboratory perspective, because then we can put them under the exact same conditions that we we had to study our laboratory-made snow packs and see how they compare. Mm. Kevin, I'm, I'm interested in kind of in your personal history, were there, were there moments within your practitioner career, whether it was patrolling or um, ranger work or forecasting work, where you had these moments of um, inquiry that, that has led you to some of this research? Yeah, well, it's funny you should ask because some of the research that I've kind of talked about so far related to the temperature gradient um, at an interface and how it might be enhanced at that interface comes directly from some of my Avalanche 1 and Avalanche 2 classes that I, that I took uh, as an early practitioner. And I was always curious about um, the rule, which was you know, has always been taught as a rule of thumb, that if you have a temperature gradient less than 10 degrees C per meter, then you know you're in a, a rounding, you know, kind of snow rounding regime. And if it's greater than 10 C per meter, you should be in a faceting regime. And I was always interested, even back then, kind of how that scaled. So if it's 10 C per meter, that's, you know, 1 degree C per 10 centimeters. You know, it's 0.1 degree C per 1 centimeter. You know, at what point does that... Uh, is that not measurable or not applicable anymore? It was always something that I wondered about. And so when I had the opportunity um, working in the laboratory at Dartmouth to, to begin that study, it wasn't something I was doing for my PhD necessarily, but I was just curious about, and I knew that I had the, the tools uh, at my disposal there to try and do a proper study on that. And so that's kind of where that work really came from was my time in the field. And uh, I'd be remiss not to also mention that I wasn't the first one to ask that question. Um, you know, there are several other people before me that, that had looked into the same, um, same sort of question for the same type of application. But um, so I was able to build off, off their work and kind of continue on. And we're still, we're still continuing on trying to answer that question today. Mm-hmm. Kevin, any close calls or near misses or just kind of aha, other aha moments that you care to share with um, from your personal skiing or professional ski patrolling or ranger work? Yeah, well, I'm not proud to admit I've had my own close calls of getting caught in an avalanche. Um, I've been fortunate enough not to get, you know, carried and, and buried, but, you know, I have been caught out in the wrong place at the wrong time while skiing before. Uh, I've also been out with friends that I've seen get caught, uh, that I've had get caught in avalanches and, uh, you know, no, no fatalities, but still, you know, it's, it's a real humbling experience to, to have firsthand. 
and it really makes you um, question how much you think that you know. Mm. And even with with uh, the academic work that I've done now and the research that we do now, I still feel like there's there's far more questions than answers right now as to um, how we should handle our own avalanche forecasting for our own purposes, whether it's operational or whether it's recreational. There, there's always more to know, and there's no one avalanche class that's going to tell you everything you need to know. Uh, it's really a combination of experience and education, I think, that ultimately leads to making better decisions in the, in the backcountry. In addition to that, I think I was always surprised while working on Mount Rainier some of the avalanche cycles that we would get in the middle of summer that were completely, I think, unpredictable. So we would have, uh, say, wet slab events happening on Liberty Ridge two days after people were climbing it, and there was really no sign uh, that those were going to release. And so from sort of a, a climbing, sort of a big mountain climbing perspective, I've always been curious about how we can do a better job forecasting for what I wrote up in a, an avalanche review article several years back about how, how do we forecast for the untouchable snowpack where you can't just go dig a pit or read observations or even have a forecaster try and give you some guidance. You really have to make those decisions for yourself. And uh, I think the best way to do that is again, collecting as much data as you have access to um, that's relevant to that particular site. And hopefully that helps you to guide, helps guide you in making decisions on uh, avalanche safety and awareness in those in those situations but that's just another example of sort of um, how I've been caught off guard I guess <laughs> with regards to uh, avalanches in in the field well it certainly seems like I've, I've kind of caught a trend here talking to some other researchers at MSU and and uh, there's still a lot that we don't know and and maybe it's a little bit cliche but it sounds like the more we find out the more we realize that what we don't know right yeah and that's the uh i think that's what's going to keep me in academics for the rest of my careers because you know every time we get to the end of one research project we might have answered the initial question that we went in with but we also created you know five or ten more mm. and so that that means that there's always more to do and more to learn and more questions to be answered so there's always there's always a, a reason to come in to work the next day that's good job security well kevin thanks a lot for sitting down with me today and sharing some of the research that's going on at msu in the sub-zero lab it sounds like pretty exciting stuff and um, the community thanks you for for the research that everybody here is doing yeah caleb it's my pleasure thank you cheers kevin thanks again for your time um, I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope all the listeners out there did as well. Um, sorry, it was it ended up being a little bit later in the in the winter season, but as we all know now, the research never ends. So there is no season specific to research that's going on in the in the Sub Zero Lab specifically. Um, if you all have feedback, again. I mentioned it before, but you can email me at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at j- gmail.com, not jmail, gmail. And you can also find a contact form from my website, 
www.theavalanchehour.com. You can find past episodes there as well as um, some, some information on the contributors, the interviewees that we've had on the show, a little bio page. And you can even grab some swag at the store. I'll send that out to you. Ski straps and hats and koozies. Just little stuff to show your support of the show. Again, if you have any ideas for episodes for Season 5, please let me know. I've already had several folks reach out, um, and I've already been gathering some great content for next season. So, already looking forward to next season. We have a few more episodes in Season 4, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on whatever podcast platform you utilize. Um, if you want to go a step above and beyond, please rate and review the show. Music today was from Ketza, and we heard the track Thinking Free bringing us into the hour, and pulling us out is Peace Out, fitting name. Um, utilization of these tracks were through the permission of the artist. You can find more tracks from Ketza at ketza.uk check them out i've been really enjoying that music of course our artwork was created by mike t you demand t until next time stay tuned stay safe and keep having fun out there cheers